Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of rape, assault, and murder. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It's rare that we get closure on this show. It is unsolved murders, after all. But sometimes we can find comfort in family supporting each other and communities coming together. Sometimes we find a different kind of justice. Then there are the stories that leave us with nothing but unanswered questions. And today, we'll be tackling one of those. Back in the 1940s, a woman named Virginia Carpenter stepped out of a cab in Texas, never to be seen again. What followed was like a trip through a house of mirrors, first going one way, then looping back around only to realize you're in a new place entirely. Imagine that eerie, surreal sensation dragging on for decades. But if there's any silver lining in a case like this one, it's that justice could be right around the corner. This is Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our only episode on Virginia Carpenter. This week, we'll uncover a young woman's life of misfortune from childhood up until the moment she disappeared. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. After World War I, railroad workers like Floyd Carpenter flooded the growing transportation hub of Texarkana to find work. For Floyd, it wasn't just a financial opportunity. Texarkana was known as a sort of suburban utopia. Children played outside, residents left their doors unlocked. It was the perfect place for Floyd and his wife Hazel to start their family. On January 25th, 1927, the young couple's dream came true. This is Floyd Carpenter at Texarkana Station. I have a message for all you out there. Go for Kansas City. You got New Orleans. San Diego. I've got some very important news. As of today, I am the proud father of a baby girl. Please welcome Mary Virginia Carpenter to the world. Virginia was the apple of her parents' eyes, but her early years were far from idyllic. When she was just three years old, she caught a severe case of influenza. All right, doctor. What's the news? Please tell us you know what's wrong with our little girl. It seems your daughter's hip bone is badly infected. Her right leg is completely misaligned. The good news is that both issues are treatable. We can operate to remove the infection. As for the misalignment, Virginia will require intense physical therapy as well as a steel brace to align her ankle and hip. We'll do anything. The toddler's life became a series of painful therapy and treatments including sunbaths that required her to sit on a tar roof in the heat of the day for hours at a time. Fortunately, with the help of her brace, Virginia started to walk again in a few months. Things still weren't easy, though. 
When she started kindergarten in 1932, the five-year-old was so self-conscious about her brace that she stopped eating. Worried, her parents took her out of school for about a year until she could have the brace removed. Little Virginia finally went back to school and over the years regained her confidence. In high school, she joined social clubs and even became a majorette in the band. But it was only a matter of time before tragedy struck her family again. (coughs) Am I going to be okay? I'm sorry, Mr. Carpenter, but it seems your illness has progressed too far. We can keep you comfortable here while... No, you can beat this, Floyd. We've gotten through worse. My business is almost off the ground. I can support us while you recover. And I'll keep you company every day after band practice. Everything will be okay. For two years, Virginia spent countless hours by her father's bed. In 1942, when she was 15 years old, Floyd passed away. Virginia had to finish high school as she and her mother mourned. More than likely, the experience brought them closer together. Two years after her father's passing, Virginia graduated. She briefly attended the University of Arkansas to study journalism, but it seemed the death of her father weighed on her mind. She transferred to the Texas State College for Women with hopes of becoming a laboratory technician. However, after just a few months, she was blindsided yet again. I don't want you to worry. It's only a quick operation. Ma, you've been sick for months, and now you've sold the insurance business? This is serious. I'm coming with you. No, honey. You need to focus on your studies. You think I'll be able to focus while you're in the hospital? I have to come with you. Please. In February 1946, Virginia accompanied her mom to a hospital in Temple, Texas. The 19-year-old likely planned to stay by her mother's side for a few days. As usual, though, fate had other plans. Hazel's surgery went smoothly, but a week later, while Hazel was in recovery, Virginia's appendix suddenly burst. Now, mother and daughter were both hospitalized. They were stuck there for a month. Still weak from their surgeries, the two women received help from a young man named Mac, a college student at Texas A&M. Within days, Virginia and Mac's relationship had gone beyond patient and caretaker. The two fell passionately in love, and before long, they got engaged. Virginia happily threw caution to the wind, but her relatives weren't so sure. Both her mother and grandparents urged her to reconsider. It seemed the family pressure finally did the couple in. Three weeks before the wedding, Virginia and Mac broke things off. After a lifetime of illness and tragedy, Virginia had hoped for marital bliss. Now, those dreams were shattered. The ordeal took a toll on her relationship with her mother. Honey, let me put those dishes away. I've got it. I told you I'm completely recovered. You don't need to keep looking after me. It's time you go back to school. Don't tell me how to live my life. Oh, I just meant... I know, I'm sorry, but you could still use my help around here. We should save up some more before I go back. Besides, you've seen the news. I don't like the thought of you being alone in Texarkana right now. Not with that phantom running around. 
1946, Texarkana had become the hunting ground for a vicious masked murderer dubbed the Phantom Killer. Between February and April of that year, about the same time the Carpenter women were hospitalized, a masked man killed two local teenage couples parked on Lover's Lanes. Virginia even knew several of the victims personally. She must have been especially shaken up. Soon, the rest of the town worried that anyone could be next. In May, the phantom broke from his pattern and attacked an older couple in their home. The husband was killed, but the wife escaped. Residents started locking their doors, nailing windows shut, and keeping firearms nearby. However, it seemed the May 1946 attack was the phantom's last. Over the next two years, things went back to normal. However, Virginia still wasn't ready to leave her mother. She remained in Texarkana, keeping herself busy with a few whirlwind love affairs. None of them turned into anything serious. Finally, at Hazel's urging, Virginia re-enrolled in the Texas State Teachers College for Women, or TSCW, in Denton, Texas. There, she could continue her lab tech training. She wasn't as enthusiastic about her studies as she once was, but it was important to Hazel that she earn her degree. She spent the spring of 1948 taking prep courses at the local junior college so that she could hit the ground running at TSCW. Just before her final exams were set to take place, Virginia attended the college's annual lake party. She seemed to have a good time with a date and another couple, but when she returned home that evening, things went downhill fast. Almost as soon as she walked through the door, Virginia fainted. Hazel was able to revive her and get her to the hospital. The doctors told Virginia she had suffered from heat stroke. They recommended a few days rest, but Virginia had other ideas. Despite the physical pain, brain fog, and memory issues, she took her exams just three days after fainting. She didn't want anything to delay her start at TSCW. It seems she did well on her finals, but a few weeks later, as she was packing her bags, Hazel asked her to postpone another semester. While the sunburn had faded, she still suffered from fatigue. But Virginia once again insisted she stay on schedule. It's not exactly clear why she was in such a rush, especially since she was going back to college mostly to please her mother. Maybe her time at the local college gave her a sense of freedom she didn't want to lose. In any case, on Tuesday, June 1st, 1948, Virginia hopped on a train to Denton. She was the picture of youth and promise, dressed in a white striped dress, red shoes, and straw hat. She checked her trunk, kissed her mother, and promised a call when she arrived. Three days later, Hazel still hadn't heard from her daughter. Coming up, Hazel embarks on a journey she couldn't have predicted. And now, back to our story. By June 4th, 1948, Hazel Carpenter was worried sick. Virginia's journey from Texarkana to Denton was just over three hours. Hazel expected to hear from her daughter the same day she left. It's unclear why the mother waited so long to do anything. Perhaps she didn't want to make her daughter feel suffocated. All we know is that after three days of silence, Hazel began to feel like something was wrong. 
Her worries only grew after she received a phone call from Kenny Branham, a young man Virginia had been dating. Kenny told Hazel he'd phoned Virginia's dorm at TSCW, but never got through to her. We're not sure why Hazel hadn't also called Virginia's dorm already. Perhaps she didn't know the number until Kenny gave it to her. Regardless, after they hung up, Hazel called the superintendent herself. I'm so glad you called, Mrs. Carpenter. We assumed Virginia was simply running late. We've been holding her spot for her, but no one has seen her. This is just so unlike her. Could you call other dormitories and ask around? Well, I hate to worry you further, but I've been informed that someone found a piece of luggage sitting on the lawn. It has Virginia's name on it. Frantic, Hazel called the Texarkana police. All they told her was that it was too late in the evening and that she should get some rest before they picked things up in the morning. That was impossible for Hazel. Texarkana had just begun to heal from the phantom killer... So far from satisfied, Hazel and a friend headed to Denton themselves. They left at 2 a.m. and arrived just before 6 a.m. First thing in the morning on June 5th, Hazel stood in the Denton police station, tears streaming down her face to file a missing person report. Working alongside TSCW officials, Denton police chief Jack Shepard took on Virginia's case. He quickly discovered that Virginia had talked to a fellow student on the train named Marjorie Webster. Marjorie and Virginia made the three-and-a-half-hour ride together and then split a cab to campus. But when they arrived at Brackenridge Hall, Virginia realized she forgot her trunk at the train station. The cab driver, a man named Jack Zachary, offered to drive them back. Marjorie said she'd join Virginia, but Virginia opted to go alone. Shepard looked into Zachary's past, which was concerning to say the least. The 40-something man had a history of petty theft, bootlegging, and spousal abuse. Shepard wasted no time bringing Zachary in for questioning. Mr. Zachary, tell me what happened once Miss Carpenter got back into your cab. I took her to the train station, and she got out to look for her trunk. She was gone for a bit and eventually came back. She said they couldn't find her luggage, but gave her a claim ticket and told her to come back tomorrow. Hmm. Then what? I took her back to campus. Before she left, I offered to pick up her trunk the next day and bring it to her. She agreed and gave me the claim ticket. Where exactly did you drop her off? Just outside her building. And she went straight inside? No. She started talking to two boys standing outside. I guess she knew them because I heard her say, well, what are y'all doing here? I didn't hear the rest of their conversation. She just asked me to put her bags on the ground and said they'd help her bring them in. What did these boys look like? One was tall. The other was a little more stout. It it was dark. I didn't get a good look. Oh, and they were standing next to a cream-colored convertible. (laughs) Nice car. What happened next? I put her stuff on the ground, and she said I could leave the trunk in the same spot the next day. Then I found a phone, called the cab company, clocked out, and drove home. That was around 10 p.m. Can anyone attest to that? My boss and my wife. Did Miss Carpenter seem anxious or upset at all that night? No, sir. Very polite young lady. And did you bring her trunk the next day? Yes, sir. 
I used the claim ticket and drove it back to her dorm. I left it on the lawn like she told me. Zachary's alibi checked out and he passed a lie detector test. Shepard's next task was to find the two boys with a convertible, and he believed someone who was already on his radar might fit the bill. Virginia's ex-boyfriend, Kenny Branham. Kenny arrived in Denton not long after Hazel. She paid his way when he offered to help search for Virginia. The fact that he was willing to come all that way, plus the fact that he'd called her when he didn't hear from Virginia, gave Hazel a high opinion of Kenny. Not to mention, Kenny had a solid alibi for the time frame Virginia went missing. He was still in Dallas. So when Shepard questioned him for 12 hours, Hazel protested. She wanted authorities to leave the heartbroken boy alone. And in time, Shepard confirmed that Kenny was, in fact, a dead end. The investigation struck another blow soon afterward. Officers found a cream-colored convertible that fit Jack Zachary's description, but learned it belonged to someone who did not match either of the two boys he saw. From here, the exact timeline is unclear, but as months passed with no sign of Virginia, authorities grew frustrated. By now, state and federal officials were involved, but no matter how much manpower went into the search, it seemed like Virginia had vanished into thin air. After a year of fruitless searching, officials were back to square one and turned their attention once again to Jack Zachary. With no other viable leads, they wanted to make sure they hadn't missed something. Plus, Hazel was partially funding the investigation. We're not sure of the exact details, but it's safe to say investigators were compelled to make some kind of effort. In August 1949, authorities obtained a search warrant for Zachary's property. One of the officers struck something hard with his shovel. Looking closer, he realized it was a set of bones. The remains were sent off for analysis, and an expert confirmed that the bones were canine, not human. Investigators weren't discouraged quite yet. They also found some buttons scattered in the dirt. But Hazel determined that none of them belonged to Virginia. At this point, she confessed that she believed her daughter was dead. However, Shepard wasn't convinced. In fact, he wondered if the 21-year-old had secrets her mother never would have guessed. Coming up, anonymous tips keep the investigation alive. Now back to the story. By 1949, nobody had seen 21-year-old Virginia Carpenter in a year. It seemed like she'd vanished into thin air. Her mother was convinced that she was no longer alive, but still felt determined to find her body and her killer. But Denton Police Chief Jack Shepard wasn't convinced of foul play. Since Virginia's disappearance in July 1948, he'd been exploring an alternate explanation, and it wasn't easy to tell Hazel what he thought. Mrs. Carpenter, you probably won't want to hear this. But I have to ask, is it possible that Virginia ran away? No, she wouldn't do that. It's not in her character. I know it's difficult to imagine, but in all this time, we haven't found any sign of a struggle or death. My daughter simply would not leave without saying something to me. She just wouldn't. I hope you can understand that I've got to investigate the possibility 
I'll be putting out bulletins at transit stops across the country. Shepard distributed Virginia's photo to bus and train stations. Within days, Denton police received dozens of tips from people who might have seen her. Shepard followed up on every call. Most led to nothing, but a few sparked his curiosity. A bus agent about 50 miles north of Texarkana said she saw Virginia Carpenter late at night around June 12th, about a week and a half after she disappeared. The agent was also able to identify Virginia in several group photos, which suggested to law enforcement that she really had seen the young woman. Shepard coordinated with the local police to survey hotels and restaurants in the town. He hoped to find someone else who spotted Virginia, but no one had. About six months later, a waitress in Sherino, Texas, 160 miles south of Texarkana, claimed she served a woman who went by the name of Virginia. The customer claimed Virginia ran away from home and was hitchhiking. She had no money to pay for food, but the waitress gave her a meal anyway. Later, when she saw Virginia's picture in the paper, she called the authorities. Shepard ordered the same shakedown in Sherino. Officers checked every nook and cranny of the place, but there was no proof that Virginia was or had ever been there. None of it slowed Shepard down. With no other leads to follow, he spoke with Virginia's old teachers and classmates at the junior college. He learned that Virginia had not only suffered from sunburn that summer, but heartbreak. One teacher told Shepard that Virginia fell in love with someone who didn't love her back. And Virginia's friends painted a picture that contradicted Hazel's claims of a perfect loving relationship between the two of them. Virginia didn't want to go back to school. She was only doing it to make her mom happy. She could be very passive about certain parts of her life. She liked to take the path of least resistance. Sometimes that caused problems between her and her mom. Path of least resistance, huh? Doesn't sound like the kind of person who would run away. Well, she'd do it for love. She was always looking for her soulmate. Someone who could save her from her life. Was she really so unhappy that she would abandon her whole life? You know what Virginia had been through, right? A bad leg, dead father, and broken engagement. Who wouldn't want a fresh start after all that? At this point, Shepard probably felt his runaway theory was on the right track, but others had different ideas. At some point in the investigation, someone suggested the 21-year-old hit her head or was otherwise injured and sustained amnesia. If that were the case, she may not have remembered where she was going or even who she was. This theory lined up with what Hazel told authorities about Virginia's terrible sunburn and how it impacted her memory. In fact, while trying to study for her exams, Virginia told her mother, Sometimes I forget what has gone before and can't remember what has happened. The theory is a stretch, but it isn't impossible especially after Hazel received some shocking news all the way from Los Angeles. A friend of hers told her a young woman who looked a bit like Virginia showed up at an L.A. bus stop. She told some people that she didn't know her name or anything else about her life. Someone must have been concerned because the young woman was taken to a local hospital. Hazel promptly phoned the hospital. She told a nurse that she wasn't able to come in to identify the young woman 
but that her daughter had an appendectomy scar. The nurse checked, and the patient had no scar. By now, Hazel didn't think she would ever see her daughter again. But she still didn't give up. For years, she threw her money at the investigation and even hired private investigators. She followed tips herself, too. She drove to Shreveport, Louisiana personally to investigate a rumor that Virginia was performing in a vaudeville show. Denton officers accompanied her. But when they arrived, Virginia was nowhere to be found. Apparently, the show spread the rumor intentionally as a way to gain publicity. Two years after the disappearance, having enlisted the help of every level of law enforcement, Shepard had no more leads to follow. The case went cold, at least for the time being. Then, almost a decade later, in August 1957, Shepard got a call from Dallas police that brought things full circle. Just booked a guy here in Dallas. When we looked at his criminal history, we saw that he was a suspect in the Virginia Carpenter case. What's his name? Jack Zachary. We cleared Mr. Zachary. Twice. You might want to unclear him. He just abducted a 25-year-old woman, drove her out to the middle of nowhere and tried to assault her. When she fought back, he gave up and took her back to where he found her, crying and apologizing the whole time. Seems he's not above kidnapping a woman. While Zachary was charged with attempted rape in Dallas, Denton police called him back to re-examine his role in Virginia's disappearance. He told the same story he always had, but this time the polygraph results indicated variations and reactions. This didn't prove Jack was lying, but it also suggested he wasn't telling the entire truth. Plus, when the Denton police investigated his alibis again, Zachary's now ex-wife changed her story. She said he actually got home closer to 2 or 3 in the morning, not 10 p.m. like she previously claimed. It's unclear why she told a different story now. Perhaps it was out of revenge, or perhaps she finally wanted to right a wrong. However, none of that was enough to charge Zachary. For the third time, he was cleared of all responsibility. Tragically, he was also released from prison because the woman he kidnapped decided not to testify against him. Just like that, the case went cold for another 40 years. By now, Hazel had passed away and Jack Shepard and other officers involved in Virginia's case had moved on or retired. Jack Zachary had also passed away by this point. It seemed the possibility of finding justice for Virginia disappeared with those who were connected to her case. Then, in 1998, yet another new piece of information, the first in four decades, fell into the laps of Denton police. An anonymous caller claimed that two men raped and murdered Virginia Carpenter. The caller wouldn't name the men and said they were dead at this point, but they did say Virginia's body was buried underneath a dam. Fifty years after her disappearance, Denton police refused to give up. After all, Virginia was reportedly last seen with two mysterious men. Maybe the time had finally come to lay her to rest. Authorities got the location of the dam and dug for three days. But they didn't find anything. That was the last lead authorities received. 
Since then, many have speculated that Virginia was a victim of the Phantom Killer. But that person has never been identified, so there's no way to know for sure. Unless someone comes forward with new information, we may never know Virginia Carpenter's fate. We can only hope that it doesn't take another 50 years for a new lead to surface. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. For more information on Virginia Carpenter, amongst the many sources we used, we found Texas Oblivion, Mysterious Disappearances, Escapes, and Cover-Ups by E.R. Bills, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kit Fitzgerald, edited by Sarah Batchelor and Terrell Wells, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, Researched by Mickey Taylor, produced by Joshua Kern, and sound designed by Carrie Murphy. It stars Jen Wong, Brian Green, Joe Hernandez, Laith Walschlager, Ellie Schiff, and Melissa Medina. Our hosts are Wendy McKenzie and me, Carter Roy. <laughs>